You can save up to 80% of your hosting costs by switching to Flight Control. Flight Control is a new deployment platform by the creator of Blitz.js that solves the age-old Heroku versus AWS trade-off by bringing the Heroku-style developer experience natively to AWS. The beauty of Flight Control is that it doesn't require any AWS skills, but since it deploys to your AWS account, you have the ability to inspect and tweak anything should the need arise. Flight Control works with any language or framework. It supports servers, static sites, and databases. Sign up at flightcontrol.dev and use the code Software Social to get 20% off your first three months. Welcome back to Software Social. Today, I have a special guest on the show, Anna Mast, the founder of Boondockers. Welcome. Anna, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Colleen. I'm so excited to be here. Can we start, before we talk about Boondockers Welcome and your company and what it is, can you tell me a little bit of your background, like before you started your company? Yeah. So I am a computer engineer by trade. I um, did that as my undergraduate degree and worked for um, a startup here. I live in Kitchener-Waterloo in Canada, and it's a pretty big startup town. So I worked for a startup here for seven or eight years, I guess, post-university before I went full-time on Boondockers Welcome. Okay. So take us, I don't even know where to start. There's so much exciting stuff to cover here. Okay. You were working as a computer engineer and tell us a little bit about the genesis of this idea and this company. Yeah, I was working as uh, essentially an embedded software engineer. The company I worked for made networking equipment, so not at all web development. That was all really new to me. But I was working full time, and then I had a baby, as one does sometimes when one is in one's thirties. And my while I was on maternity leave in Canada, we are lucky enough to have twelve months of paid, what? not incredibly well paid, but paid maternity leave, <laughs> government I didn't sponsored. Know that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So it's actually, I think now you can actually take up to 18 months, but only 12 months of them are paid. But I mean, it's a small, a very small monthly amount compared to what my actual salary would have been. But I did, I took the full 12 months. And during those 12 months, my mother, who lives about a 45 minute drive from here, came regularly to visit her new grandson. And, you know, while we were visiting one day, she brought up this idea that she'd had for a business, which was sort of like couch surfing for RVers. She had been RVing for probably almost 10 years at that point and had actually self-published like some online travel guides that had gotten a decent amount of traction. She was, you know, making a decent income from those. And so she had quite a following of fellow RVers specifically looking for affordable camping or free camping really is what her guides focused on. So she had this vision for sort of this couch surfing or driveway surfing idea for RVers, a community where people could offer their own driveway to other RVers who were, you know, in need of a place to stay for a night or two. And couch surfing, as opposed to like Airbnb works on kind of a a pay it forward mentality. You're not actually getting paid for people to come stay in your driveway or, or on your couch. In that instance, it's more of a, you know, just for the love of it and for the social aspect of it. And RVers already 
do this naturally. They, you know, will meet each other at a campground and after like, you know, sitting around a campfire, having beers with somebody for the first time, they will often say, oh, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, come park in my driveway for the night. The idea that my mom had brought to me was to sort of formalize this into an online community that we could charge a membership for. And she had originally actually asked me how much I thought it would cost for her to get somebody else to build it for her. And I, at that point, was on maternity leave and suggested, why don't I try to build it for you? Because I figured it would probably be pretty expensive and we had no real idea how much, whether it would take off. It seemed like pouring her life savings into that might be uh, not the best plan. So that's what we did for the rest of my maternity leave. My mom would come over like one day a week for a few hours, maybe a second day a week, but usually not. I would put some effort into building the website, which I, I, like I said, I had no web development background. I was pretty much learning as I went. And actually it it took two maternity leaves before I actually finished it and we launched. So I had another child in the interim, but about three or four months after my second was born, we launched Boondockers Welcome. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> That's a crazy story. So, so, you know, my background's electrical engineering. So I had a similar transition. I was doing like PLC, programmable logic controller programming yep. and also self-taught web Tell me, was it easier, harder than you thought it would be, like teaching yourself how to build a web application? I mean, I started off actually really, really basic. Our first iteration, which lasted for probably four or five years, was just built on top of the Drupal CMS with a bunch of mods that I wrote in PHP on it. I had a little bit of PHP knowledge from just playing around when the internet first came out, I want to say, because I'm too little. (laughs) But so yeah, that was our first iteration was, you know, very little web development. I think I learned a lot more about running a server and web hosting and that sort of stuff in in those first few years. And most of the development was just, you know, piecing together things in a, a CMS that, you know, forcing it to do things that it maybe wasn't meant to do. I did eventually rewrite it entirely in Python using Django, which was a huge uh, learning curve. But at that point, I had actually quit my job and had, you know, a lot more time to, to learn it from scratch. And it was, I mean, it was interesting and challenging, but the internet is so full of opportunities and information. And especially if you're learning something like Django, or I'm sure the same goes for Rails, right? There's just such an amazing community behind it that you can find so many resources to teach yourself that from scratch. So you were working a full-time job. You had a baby, you're on maternity leave. Presumably, I mean, you're an engineer, so you have a well-paying, stable job, and your mom shows up, your mom who likes to RV, and shares with you her idea. Were you, I mean, what was your reaction to that? What was your first reaction to that? I mean, when she said she wanted to hire somebody to build it for her, I thought she was crazy. I'm like, you have no idea if this is going to make any money. This is going to cost a fortune. I've since seen, you know, a number of people who've outsourced things like that. And you end up with, you know, garbage, especially if you don't know enough about the technology to really manage the people who are doing yep. the outsourcing for you. You end up with just a very unusable garbage website that you've spent, you know, $25,000 on. And I didn't want to see that mm-hmm. happen to her. Anyway, so when I suggested that I did it, I thought it would be more of a just sort of entertaining side project, something fun to do on the side. And it did. It kind of stayed that way. We eventually, you know, did launch and start making some money, but it took a long time before we made any real significant amount of money. And that whole time, it was just 
sort of a fun side project thing that was a neat opportunity for me to do something with my mom like that. I mean, yeah. we were always close. My parents split up when my sister and I were quite young. So it was always just sort of the three of us. It was a really neat opportunity to work with her that way. And I mean, it had its ups and downs. We certainly butted heads in a way that mothers and daughters are, you know, likely to do perhaps more than, you know, co-workers or co-founders who don't have that bond. But it was a really great opportunity. Plus, you know, like I said, she would often come and, and spend time with her grandkids. So it was really neat for her and them in that respect too. Were you entrepreneurial before your mom brought you this idea? Was this something you always kind of sort of wanted to do or? No, it never, <laughs> never even occurred to <laughs> really? me. Really? No. That's amazing. My parents, you know, when they were still together, when I was really young, owned a series of, well, they owned a bar actually. And my grandparents had owned a bunch of sort of bars and hotels. And I, I don't think it had gone all that well for them. It was like the 80s and, yeah. you know, they eventually stopped doing that. And I kind of always saw entrepreneurship in that lens as like a very risky, you're going to lose your life savings and have nothing to show for it at the end. So it never even occurred to me that entrepreneurship would be something that I would be interested in. You know, I already felt like I was pushing the boundaries as a woman in tech. The idea that, you know, of going on to found a startup was just totally not something that even crossed my mind. Yeah. So your mom brings you this idea. You think, I can probably figure this out. You start building it. Do you go back to work after that first year? Yeah. So I had a 12-month maternity leave. I went back to work for, I guess, a year and a half before I had my second kiddo. Then after that, and again, I took another 12 months. After that 12 months, I went back full-time at that point. I kind of went back and forth between full-time and part-time trying to just balance not so much the side project, Boondockers Welcome, but just Life. trying to balance having a family. <laughs> and yeah, it was, I think, about a year and a half after I went back after my second maternity leave that I ended up actually just quitting my job full stop was not at all because Boondockers Welcome was making enough money to pay the bills. It was okay because I was privileged enough to have a husband who had a very good paying job. At that point, he had taken a job that involved a lot of travel. And it was me with two kids, one of whom was in daycare and one of whom was in kindergarten and trying to get to my job. And it was just, it kind of went a little crazy. We decided it was better for all of us mentally to uh, mental health wise for me to choose to stay home for a bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's literally my story as well. Very incredibly similar. Yeah. Incredibly similar story I had as well. I did the whole trying to have a baby at home and work part time, then work full time, then work part time. Then I had another child. And yeah, so I'm familiar with trying to balance all of those things. And there are people who do it and do it well, and I have all the respect in the world for them. But I mean, our family, it just, we're not organized enough. We are not type A enough. We are not, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not, maybe, maybe I'm, I don't know that, I'm, I'm doing a disservice is. to people by saying you have to be super organized in type A and you can't make it work. But for us, it, it was something that we were lucky enough to be able to do. So you had decided to leave your job primarily for familial reasons, and you have a little side project. Tell me about that period of time in your life. Were you like just so busy with the kids that you didn't have time to work? Did you try to do both? What was that like? It was mostly about the kids. Yeah. At that point, like I said, my older one was in kindergarten. My younger one was still a toddler slash preschool age. 
I did eventually have my anger got, I enrolled them in like a one day a week preschool at the local community center sort of thing. And then eventually we got into like a three mornings a week co-op preschool. So I did, you know, manage to carve out two hours a day, three times a week to essentially work on Boondockers Welcome at that point. Daniel would go to preschool and I would go to the library that was across the road and sit there with my laptop. And that was like mostly those six hours a week was what I worked on. When they still took naps, you know, I'd sneak a little bit in there, but a little bit after bed maybe. But honestly, it was maybe six to 10 hours a week tops that I was working on the, the, the side project at that point. We didn't move the needle hugely in that time, but it did continue to grow even without a huge amount of effort. I pretty much just kept up with security patches and little updates here and there and a few feature improvements. But at that time, it was very slow but steady growth. So it was making money. It was. Essentially, it's a two-sided marketplace, right? We have hosts who are usually RVers themselves who are you know, willing to have people come and stay on their property for a night or two. And then guests who are you know, obviously RVers, sometimes they're RVing sort of full-time either for a year or two or indefinitely, or sometimes they're just going on month or two trips. Anyway, we had seeded sort of the host base with people from my mother's mailing list. She had this mailing list of people who had bought her travel guides. When we launched originally, I think we had about 200 hosts from that list, which was fantastic. We started charging essentially if you were a guest, you would pay an annual membership. And you know, I think I, I very much remember that first, oh my gosh, somebody paid. We have an actual paying member. And, you know, though I remember the, the period where it was like, maybe once a week we would get a new member. And then it was like, oh, maybe a couple times a week we would get a new member. I think by the time I quit my job, we probably were making about, we probably had about $30,000 a year in revenue. So, nice. I mean, it's not nothing. It was certainly, you know, pretty impressive for not having put a whole lot of effort into it. But there's a bit of, I don't know, virality, I guess, in it and that people talk to each other about where they're staying all the time when you're RVing. If you meet somebody, you're always asking, you know, oh, where have you just come from and where are you headed, right? So there's a lot of word of mouth um, advertising that happened for us just through that. So did you think it was going to be successful or was it solidly in hobby project status? I remember before I quit my job thinking, oh, if we could just get to this level, then I could maybe quit my job and feel justified in doing so. Um, and we, like I said, we certainly were nowhere near there. Did I really think it was going to get there? Not really. I kind of just figured it was a fun project and anything that we had from it was gravy and just a nice addition to our our bank account, but we weren't funneling all the proceeds back into the company and like spending a bunch of money on advertising and marketing budgets or anything crazy like that. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a very low customer revenue product, right? Our our customers would pay us an annual membership of, it was at first $25 and then eventually $30 and then eventually $50. (laughs) But a lot of people would only stay customers for one or two years, sort of like as they were traveling and then they would graduate to, you know, becoming a host maybe. So it wasn't the kind of thing that snowballed as quickly as one would like. And it meant that, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't justify customer acquisition costs of throwing a whole ton of marketing money at it. Or at least we couldn't. Maybe at scale you could, but at our level, we certainly couldn't. And how 
by the way, like, how cool is it that your mother had a mailing list? <laughs> like, what? I know. She was definitely planning ahead a little bit in that respect. Honestly, she had built this reputation for herself as an RVer who could help you, you know, find free camping. Before we even launched, she had actually been interviewed by the New York Times. Whoa! Yeah, it was like a whole profile about her, you know, frugal RV travel is the name of her website. And she still does run that right now. Yeah, so she'd been profiled as, you know, somebody who can help you find affordable and free camping. And she got to the point where she, you know, go somewhere and people would recognize her and say, oh my gosh, you're Marianne. You write those guides. Those, those are amazing. And so it was really amazing what she had managed to build and completely on her own. I might be a computer yeah. engineer, but I did not help one bit. She taught herself everything she needed to know to launch her own guides and website and, and get all of that traffic herself. That's amazing. Like, that's super impressive. So did you guys do any marketing? I mean, outside of, I guess, everything she did before you started the business was marketing. So she just kept up with that, I assume. But did you do anything else? Not really. No. Like, paid marketing, we never really never. did anything. We definitely benefited from, like I said, the, the community aspect. We did eventually launch an affiliate program. And we found that a lot of influencers, specifically YouTube, has a lot of like RV influencers who, you know, would either find our product on their own and then just create a video reviewing it and leaving all sorts of glowing reviews for it. And that would drive a lot of traffic to us. Or we occasionally would reach out to them and ask them if they would become affiliates. But more often than not, it was just sort of they would find us and sign up on their own. And that really did help drive traffic. So it was never other than the affiliate um, fees that we paid them. Like that was our biggest marketing expense, really. It's just so wild to me. I mean, I'm, you know, coming into this listening to all of the podcasts and taking everyone's advice and you literally did everything the way we're told not to do it, right? B I to know. C, I, two absolutely. Sides. And trust me, so I, I, spoiler alert, we sold the company. And so I am now sort of going back to the beginning and I am not doing any of those things <laughs> because despite the fact that we managed to have, you know, a great deal of success doing it was really hard. And I think we, you know, lucked out in a lot of respects. We had this sort of community that loves to talk and pass things on to each other. And we did eventually set up a Facebook group that a lot of our members then ended up joining. And it really helped to promote the product to people who were interested, especially it's a bit of a, a strange idea if you're used to staying in an RV park. The idea of like going and camping on some stranger's property puts a lot of people off, but most people say that, you know, once you try it, you realize most of these hosts are just lovely, friendly people. And it's like, we hear stories all the time about, oh, I was skeptical to try it. But then my first host, they had chickens and they gave us all these fresh eggs or they took my kids out and, you know, showed them the the pond or they took us square dancing. Like literally there was a one host who took every guest who came square dancing. That was always what happened. It was like just all these amazing <laughs> stories. And so- yeah you know, eventually it got to the point where it really snowballed and, and these stories just sold the product for us. And as long as we put it up on Facebook or, or people would tell the stories amongst themselves in other forums and it started to, to just build its own reputation and brand that way. And that is nothing that I can really take credit for other than choosing a market where people love to talk. So, I mean, it sounds like the 
value proposition here for most people was the community, less the driveways, less so the driveways. Absolutely. And that was something that we totally didn't realize until, you know, probably four or five years into it. At the beginning, we were marketing ourselves as, you know, free, cheap, affordable, you know, and it turned out that no, it was 100% about the community. It was about, you know, unique opportunities and great ways to meet fellow RVers and share your stories and meet locals who can tell you about all the neat places nearby that you should be visiting. And eventually we tried to change some of our messaging to, to position ourselves that way. So did you know, like when you started this, did you know other people doing this? Did you have any examples or community or friends? People building their own companies, not RVing, yes. you mean? Not RVing. I mean, yeah. people building their own companies. <laughs> not really. I mean, I have one okay. friend who, you know, has always been very entrepreneurial and has built his own mini empire, but not online, not online business, like not website building products like this, right? And I didn't even... I didn't even know to go look out on the internet for other people like that, right? right. And it was just, I did eventually start listening to Startups for the Rest of Us. And okay. I kind of was like, okay, there are other people like that. But at the same time, I, I kind of found excuses why my business didn't fit the model of everybody else that was doing that. And I'm like, oh, well, it's not really SaaS and it's not really, you know, all these things that they say to do. I'm not really doing those things. Therefore... I guess I, I don't qualify. There's <laughs> a lot of imposter syndrome going on. So you had been building the business like five or six years, solidly a side project. I wanted to ask you, when your kids were in preschool, were you doing nights and weekends then or were you just doing when they were at preschool? I mean, a little bit of nights and weekends, but it was certainly not hardcore. Okay. So you weren't doing any kind of big push. You were just doing work as it kind of fit into your life. Okay. So you'd been building this for like five or six years, and then what happened? Well, and then my my younger one started school full-time. That was really ah. sort of the, the magical moment, right? When it was like yes. instead of six hours a week, I suddenly had six hours a day, right? right. And it was like <laughs> yes. any parent who is working a full-time job knows that like you – or even a part-time job, like you can fit more into six hours as a parent than you could before because you're like, oh, no, this is my window and I have to get stuff done. And so, yep. yeah, once once my younger started school full time, then I, you know, we did like some customer uh, interviews and surveys and sort of tried to figure out what features our customers really wanted. And that's when I totally rewrote it from scratch. And like, you know, we switched to Django and I implemented a bunch of new features. We changed our business model quite a bit. The change allowed our hosts previously had were also guests, so they were also paying, which meant that when people stopped traveling, they often dropped off as hosts. Oh, so at that, that time, sense. we made a change to all hosts could sign up for free. So that really helped uh, accelerate our growth. It had been, you know, definitely slowed down from that before. So it took me probably a year. It was a, a little bit more than a year. It was about 14 months after my younger one started school before I launched the the sort of newly built site. And that was really the turning point for the business when all of a sudden, you know, instead of $30,000, $40,000 a year, we were within about a year and a half of that. I think we had about $100,000 a year in revenue. So it really started pushing things wow. in the right direction. Wow. That's awesome. So you were basically working on that full time for, I mean, full time, six hours a day for a year to get you to that point. 
yeah, I mean, there were vacations in there. I'm sure that, you know, there were Life. times when yeah. I didn't. And because it was no longer sort of an MVP, I wasn't trying to get it out the door as fast as humanly possible. There was like a lot of, I probably over-engineered it a bit, but honestly, I didn't want to break anything, right? I had all of these customers who had sort of expectations of at least making it as good as what they've got now. So unlike an MVP where you're like willing to just push stuff out that might be broken, I really wanted to make sure that it was solid enough that all of our current customers would be happy and nobody would get lost in the shuffle. So yeah, I, I spent a full year essentially rebuilding it from scratch. So when your youngest started school, was there ever a period of time where you were like, I should just get a job because I'll make more money and it's more stable? Did you ever have that conflict while you were rebuilding? You know what? I really didn't. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Uh, I mean, part of that speaks to our privilege that, you know, we had a house that was paid off and my husband is also an engineer, so I had a very good job. And um, yeah. But I, I didn't love working all that much. Like, I, I never felt... I enjoyed my job as an engineer, but I never really felt passionate about any of the work that I was doing. It was always just, well, this is what they've told me to work on, so this is what I'm going to work on. Whereas I loved building stuff that I got to choose what to build, and I got to decide what tech stack to use, and I got to decide whether or not this was an important feature and prioritize things. That side of it, not just the technology, but the actual, you know, product management side of it was something that was completely new to me and that I really, really enjoyed. So I'm calling you for pep talks because about every six months I freak out and I'm like, I need to get a job right now. It also, I mean, anybody who has kids, you know, at that age will recognize that it's so hard to balance a full-time job, even once they're in school full-time. Yeah. Right. Like it, there's here anyway, it's like, oh, it's a snow day today. Oh, there's like somebody sick. This person threw up that, you know, the, the doctor's appointments and just all sorts of things. And we had like teacher strikes and, and just so many things that cut into your ability to to work a full time job to the, the expectations of your employer. And so even when my kids went back to school, it was just going to be too much of a pain to try and balance mm -hmm. that again. Yeah. So I did actually take a job like eight months ago and then I left it. It's a whole thing. But once I was there, I realized that I was the only woman at the company. The company was amazing. Like they treated me really well. And we technically had unlimited PTO, but I have three kids. Someone always has to be at the dentist or at the doctor or they're sick or they have in California, they get out at 1.30 on Wednesdays. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> What's that about? So yeah, I think that is something I have really noticed and I didn't notice it until I took the full-time job that with the kids and like, I'm still the primary caregiver. There's just so much stuff. Yeah. And I know there are men out there who are the primary caregiver too, and it applies to them as well. But I think that more than anything is what holds women back. I mean, you know, obviously there's maternity leaves and things, but just somebody has to be on call for all those things all the time. And if it is always one parent, one primary caregiver, then it is so hard to commit to that full-time job and to not feel guilty all the time about, you know, either you're feeling guilty because you're not where you need to be as a parent or because you're not where you need to be as an employee. Yep. Pretty much. I feel like that's incredibly accurate. And it's funny, I have a, a friend who is, she's like a professor of social work, and she told me something the other day that was apparently the women or people who have sort of salaried jobs where you have the flexibility to, you know, work at different hours, 
end up feeling way more guilt than parents who have sort of like scheduled, you know, nine, minimum wage or whatever shift work job. Because yeah. for them, you know, it's this is when I have to be there and I'm not going to feel guilty because I had to miss your middle of the day school recital or whatever because it's out right. of my hands. Whereas parents who have some flexibility to, you know, I could skip work for two hours and go watch your Christmas concert, but then I have to make up that time later on. Those parents are the ones that struggle the most with that balance. Yes. That like speaks to me. No one has ever said that, but it makes sense because that's exactly what would happen is I'd be like, oh, my daughter has her ballet recital at two in the afternoon. But then you come home and you're like, oh, I should work for those two hours that I missed. Yep, exactly. And I mean, that still happens when you're self-employed to some degree, (laughs) but at least it's your own internally imposed deadlines and not some deadline that that somebody else has imposed upon you. So I want to ask you a question about your appearance on Startups for the Rest of Us. I mentioned this before the show, but it was, you and Rob didn't really dig into it, but it was like one of my favorite things you said is you were talking about going to Microconf and you were talking about identity and how hard it was to be a business owner when you didn't, I interpreted what you were saying is when you didn't see anyone else like you doing it. Yeah. I mean, I know people who run startups here, like venture funded startups, you know, almost exclusively men. But the people that I interacted with every day were the other moms who were dropping their kids off at school and picking them up every day. And to them, I looked like just another stay at home mom who would drop my kids off at school and then walk home every day. And when my kids were younger, you know, those kids, the the parents of my younger's classmates in preschool, you know, I would sometimes go have a coffee with them while the kids were at preschool because I had that flexibility. But it became increasingly difficult for me to identify as an entrepreneur when from, you know, the outside and by all the people who surrounded me, I identified as a stay-at-home mom, right? And yeah, there was just such difficulty balancing those and, and making sort of that internal decision that, no, I am an entrepreneur and I, I can focus on my business and that can be part of what defines me. Awesome. So, Let's get back to your business. You ended up selling it, right? What's the the exciting punchline? This is the exciting yes. part. Okay. Yeah. Tell us. So essentially, we, back at the beginning of the pandemic, things, RVing really got popular oh, in case you sure. hadn't noticed. There was a whole sort of, it's the only safe way to travel. You don't have to stay in a hotel. You have your own kitchen with you, so you don't have to eat in restaurants. Uh, you don't have to fly anywhere. So RVing really took off during the pandemic. And campsites became even more difficult to come by. So alternative camping opportunities like we provided were very in demand. And essentially last year, at the beginning of the year around March, we were approached by another company in the space. They're called Harvest Hosts. They have a very similar business model to ours in that it's an annual membership. But instead of staying on other RVers property, you stay at wineries, uh, breweries, museums, and things like that. So they had grown quite uh, substantially as well over the years prior to that. And they had actually just taken a whole bunch of funding. We actually had 
for a company that had never really anticipated we were going to go anywhere, we actually had several investors reach out to us as well after wow. the pandemic started and things started really taking off for RVing. We had several investors reach out interested in, you know, whether we wanted to take investment money. And that was not something that I was really interested in. I didn't even like having a boss. The idea of having investors just was not, <laughs> not something I wanted to even approach. Anyway, but Harvest Host had taken a bunch of investment money and they were looking to expand. And so we, I knew that our customers already about half of them were also members of the Harvest Host membership group. So it was a really good fit. It wasn't yeah. just selling to, you know, some big conglomerate. Private it was, equity. <laughs> it, it, yeah. So it, I knew that it, it would probably sit well with our users. And that was important to both me and my mom because, you know, we really did our very best to sort of we were a very customer-centric company, right? We listened to our customers as much as we could, and we made lots of decisions that were probably poor business decisions, but very customer-centric decisions. So we wanted to make sure that we did right by them. And anyway, so when Harvest Host approached us, we kind of said, well, maybe. And then the uh, the price was right. So it was hard to say no. Do you guys have to like, so you're this the first time you've sold a business, right? Yeah. Do you need, did you like have to get lawyers? Did you have to get one of those merger and acquisition people? We we <laughs> did get a lawyer. I definitely would not okay. have done it without a lawyer. Without I would not lawyer. recommend doing it without a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's just a local law firm here. Harvest Hosts, having just taken a bunch of investment money, had like highfalutin New York City lawyers. And my lawyer joked that like their secretary probably made more than she did per hour. <laughs> but my lawyer did a just fine job. She did a, a you know amazing job of, of helping us through the whole process. Now that you guys have sold it, are you still involved or is it like a clean break? For about six months after the sale, I stayed on to just help with the transition. But then yeah. after that, it was a clean break. So those six months, we sold in May of 2021. So those six months okay. ended back in November. So now I am a free agent. How do you feel about all of it? At the beginning, it was kind of bittersweet. And yeah. you're always kind of like, oh, did we sell too soon? I, I, I didn't really feel that way too much. There's a lot of stress in running a company once it gets to a certain size, especially, you know, there were always sort of liability questions like, should I be worried about somebody getting hurt on somebody's property? Should we have insurance or, you know, are my terms and conditions yeah. protecting me? Should anything go wrong? I think more so than, you know, a, a, a small SaaS or anything, that particular company stressed me out <laughs> in ways that yeah. made me happy to, to walk away. Yeah. And, you know, the, there was always sort of a lot because you're dealing with people and consumers. You know, we had a very popular Facebook group, but people are people. And every once in a while, you get the trolls and it just goes crazy. And there are some people who can let all that stuff roll off their back. And I was just not one of them. I was always sort of very emotionally invested and like, oh gosh, these people are, you know, being mean to each other on our Facebook group. And I can't let that happen. And it was always just stresses that I was happy to not have to deal with anymore. So have you done something cool with all your money? Like, did you ever have a goal? Like, if I sell this, I'm going to Tahiti because that's what I'm going to do, by the way. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the money hit our bank account and it was like, you know, peak COVID. We're not really oh, comfortable yeah, traveling anywhere. It was nobody had their vaccines yet. And yeah, yeah. so the, the money has 
done nothing but probably decrease in size because the stock market took a tank. So <laughs> that, that's pretty much all that's happened at this point. All right. Well, let me suggest Tahiti in two years once it's safe to travel again. It looks beautiful. Tell me what you're doing now. So I'm starting another company because I loved doing it. I mean, yeah. the kids are still in school. You know, we're not really ready to retire yet. And it's still COVID. I'm still not really going anywhere. Right. So retirement seems just silly and pointless. And I, I mean, I'd have to do something with myself. So one of the the problems that, and of course, the standard story, right? If you want to figure out a problem to solve, start a company and then you'll find problems that need yeah. to be solved, right? One of the things that I ended up noticing, we had a very active or, or well-read newsletter that we sent out every week. We would just send out, you know, very quick, here's a listing of all of our new hosts. We had probably like 20,000 people on that mailing list. And every Monday we would send that out and we'd see a nice bump in, in sales. So it was a really great marketing tool for us. But very late in the game, actually, after we'd sold, I went and looked and realized we had like a double opt-in mail list where you have to, you know, subscribe and then go back to your email and confirm in that that is, in fact, what you wanted to do. And I went and managed to, you couldn't see this on any dashboard, but I was able to like download a bunch of CSV files and sort of dig into it and be like, wow, only 60% of the people who try to sign up for our mailing list ever actually confirm and hmm. I, finally, I went and did a little bit of research. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty much the norm is that only about 60% of people signing up for newsletters actually finish that confirmation step. So I am starting a company now uh, called SubscribeSense that tries to help people, help uh, mailing list owners increase that confirmation rate. Awesome. So where can people find you on the internet if they want to learn more about you and follow your new journey? Yeah, if you want to follow me, I am on the Twitters pretty regularly these days. So my handle is uh, schoolgirl, spelt S-K-U-L-E-G-I-R-L. -L. School is the name for our engineering. The engineering program I went to calls itself S-K-U-L-E school. So that was wow. the joke there. That's been my internet handle since I graduated from university a long, long time ago. Yeah, so the best place to find me is there. Perfect. Well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Colleen. I'm so excited to have been here. I got to say, I was Twitter friends with Michelle before you guys launched the podcast. And when uh, you ended up as her co-host, I was very excited because I know Michelle has, you know, all the business acumen, but you're a tech girl. And there are so few of us who are not just women running their own companies, but technical women running their own companies. So I was really yep. excited to, to get to meet with you today. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Software Social. Please let us know what you think of the episode. You can find us on Twitter at Software Social Pod. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality. Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from the Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, Mega Maker, 
Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabel developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.